0: pray. Father, I just ask that uh, as we look at your word, as we try to hear your voice, that you would just speak into our hearts, that uh, you would be the one who's doing all of the teaching just now. And may your spirit just speak to us, whatever it is that we need, whether we need encouragement or discipline or whatever it is, whatever our, our deepest need is spiritually. Father, I just ask that you would just provide that and that you would be in these next few minutes. So we just ask that, as we've been singing to glorify your name, that in this section of our our service, we would just glorify you as well. And as we maybe even look at Jesus, uh, we just lift him up and magnify his name. So we just ask for your blessing and may your spirit just move in our hearts and teach us. For your glory. Amen. Well, we haven't been here for a few weeks now. Um, And I can honestly, so I think probably this is for three weeks off and then we're back for the first week but like keith maybe um and i can honestly say i think on behalf of sarah and i we we genuinely miss being a region chapel when we're not here um particularly after we've had a few weeks away we really really do miss uh being here so um it's just lovely to be back um today we're looking at uh psalm 41. it's a psalm of david and it is the first sorry it's the final psalm in the first book of the psalms. so if you're not aware the, the, the Psalms, as we talk about them, is actually split up into five books. Your Bible probably does it for you. And we're looking at the last Psalm in the first book of the Psalms. Now, this becomes a bit more relevant, this point, um, with the final verse. So one of the things that marks the end of each of the books is a particular stanza that comes up. So the final verse in our Psalm this morning kind of sits by itself. It's not like a normal transitioning verse. It doesn't just naturally follow one from the rest of them. So um, that's just a little... Uh, by the by this is the last psalm of the first book of the psalms and it ends with a double amen amen which is one of the things that notes the end of one of the psalm books now there's a few statements that are going to be made in this psalm which are are easier to understand if we have some kind of historical context i often found when i was listening to teaching when i was growing up particularly around the psalms if you knew what the psalmist usually david but not always if you knew what he was going through if you knew what part of life he was actually in then the psalm made a bit more sense. You could kind of understand the context of when he was writing. I always found that. Now, the problem here is that the psalm that we're looking at today, the context isn't entirely clear. Like, the actual historical background isn't entirely clear. For example, it talks, David talks about um, having an illness and being ill. But actually, nowhere when you read in 2 Samuel, which presents most of, the, most of the life of David, do you actually read about him being ill. So, I'm going to give you the context, the historical context, for what most of the scholars suggest this is probably the point in his life where he wrote this psalm, okay? Probably. Anyway, so David had sinned. It's a well-known sin. He had caused the death of a man by asking the commander of the armies to place this particular man at the front of during a battle, and then withdrawing the troops really quickly, leading to the death of this particular man. All of this was done so that he could cover up adultery with this man's wife, leading to her being pregnant. And he actually was quite keen to marry her himself. The account is well known, and you can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 11 if you like, not right now. And it concludes with this phrase, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. What David had done was awful, and he knows it. It was a vile series of sins. It was adultery, followed by a plot to murder, and ultimately leading to a man's murder. It was a hidden thing. There wasn't really very many people who knew about it, just David and one or two other people. And the consequences were terrible too. An innocent child um, who was born from the adultery, would die. Uh, The breaking down of David's relationship with God, although he's undoubtedly repentant of the sin, it really does damage his relationship with God. The damage to his own reputation, clearly, and also very importantly for the context of this particular psalm we're thinking about today, a real significant effect on his own household. In Psalm 12, the Lord says to King David through the prophet Nathan, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. God promises to remove all that David has, giving it to somebody very close to him, and doing it very publicly in front of the entire nation. Now, while the child born through the adultery very sadly died, the next son between David and Bathsheba was Absalom, a child who would grow to cause real problems for King David. This son, Absalom, due to events dealt with in 2 Samuel chapter 13, again, read it if you like at some point, would eventually have to go on the run. He, he kills a brother in revenge for the rape of a sister. And for three years, Absalom is kind of ostracized. He's, he's, away, he's isolated, he's away from family and friends. He's, he's out in the, the wilderness, if you like. But David, his father, longs for his return. He longs to have him back home. He really wants to have his son back in the palace, with his family, with David. Read the events of 2 Samuel 14 to see how the circumstances change to allow Absalom to come home. There's a bit of a conspiracy thing that goes on. But eventually, Absalom is able to come back and be part of the king's household. However, the promise of God was that for David, all that he had, everything that he had was going to be taken away and given to somebody very close to him, that person was going to be his son Absalom. And then the next part of the narrative, when you're reading in Second Samuel, Absalom conspires against King David, and slowly turns the nation away from him, towards himself. It allows a coup to overthrow the king. Now, when you read in Second Samuel 15, reading slightly between the lines, it seems as if King David is ill. Not entirely able to fulfill his role as judge in the nation. One of the things that he would do is when people had serious quarrels and big issues, they would bring them to the king. But Absalom, his son, had developed a system, a sneaky system. He would ride out, with King David being too ill to to really leave the palace, again reading between the lines, he would ride out, out of the city and he would stand by the roadside and as people were coming with their quarrels to meet with the king, absalom the son would say to king david uh, would say to these people king david is too ill and he's not able to meet you he's not able to deal with your problems then he would help them and then he would tell them how things would be better if he was king and slowly bit by bit he turned the hearts of the entire nation away from king david and towards himself it was subtle it was effective and after four years of these underhand dealings Absalom puts his plan into action, spreading across the land the news that he is now king. And to really persuade the nation, he enlists David's chief counsellor, Ahithophel, so that when people see the the new king, Absalom, and and the, the chief counsel of the old king, Ahithophel, standing beside the new king, the nation would be convinced and committed that this is the new king, and so the coup takes place and is successful and king david and all those who are loyal to him and all of his family they have to flee from the palace and all of those things which were his all of the promises of god's that they would be given to somebody who was close to him they all come true and the words of nathan the prophet proved to be exactly right now the story might seem a little bit out of context for today's passage but it really does seem to be, as most scholars suggest, the one place where this particular psalm fits in. And the ideas and, and some of the things which are presented in the psalm really seem to fit in, in the life of David. He's a dejected, he's an ill king, finding himself tricked, hurt, betrayed, and on his knees before God. And writing this psalm probably just before he has to flee the palace itself, as he knows that his own friends have conspired against him. And so Psalm 41 says this. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. The Lord protects and preserves them. They are counted among the blessed in the land. He does not give them over to the desires of their foes. The Lord sustains them on the sickbed and restores them from the bed of illness. I said, have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? When one of them comes to see me, he speaks falsely. While his heart gathers slander, then he goes out and spreads it around. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, A vile disease has afflicted him. He will never get up from this place where he lies. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. But may you have mercy on me, Lord. Raise me up that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. Because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And so David writes this psalm as a cry out to God to look on him with grace, kindness, healing, and mercy. The psalm splits down into three main sections. Verses 1 to 4, David thinks about those who have dealt kindly with the poor. In verses 5 to 9, he's looking at the actions of those who have dealt very badly with him. And then in verses 10 to 12, David's plea to God based on God's mercy. Leaving just verse 13, there's that closing verse, that closing stanza In this book of praise to God. So he starts in verses 1 to 3. With this general consideration about those who have had regard for the weak. What a way to start. Blessed is. It starts the way that many of the Psalms do. Way back into Psalm 1. Or even the Beatitudes of Jesus himself. Blessed are those who. Blessed to be favoured by God. To be looked at God. in, In a gracious way to be thought about by God in a wonderful way. The first psalm talks about those who are blessed because they delight in the Lord, meditate in his word, bring good fruit in their lives. And now we see one mark of that good fruit. Someone who cares for the weak. Now the weak, as David wrote, probably was literally those who were ill. Those who needed extra help or support because of their health. But we can widen it much further to those who are just generally in need. Those who are poor, those who struggle with any number of problems. David says that those who have regard for these people, they are blessed by God. They are seen in the eyes of God, favored. They are loved by God. Those who have their eyes opened to the needs of others, those who take their eyes off themselves, who are conscious conscious of people around about them who see the needs of others. These are a great type of people to be. But more than that, not just those that see the need of other people, but those who want to act, those who want to help, those who want to act into the needs of others, those who see those who are in a worse position than themselves and want to support them, want to help them, want to be part of the solution of their lives. David has experienced this and he's thankful for it and he he blesses God for these people Jonathan who was his best friend one who loved him like a brother one who loved him more than a brother one who cared for his life someone like Joab who was his general one who would have died at his side one who who would have guarded him even when he was ill many people through his life that would have been there for him in the darkest times and David had some pretty dark times But David knew what a blessing it was to have people in his life who regarded him as in, in his illness, in his poverty, in his poorness, whatever it happened to be. And he was describing such people and asking God to bless them. Now it doesn't surprise us, however many thousands of years later, that there is a call from God to us to be those people. To look out for those who suffer, to have our eyes opened to the needs of other people. Not just to see them but with an aim to engage in the situation and to actually help them. James 1 verse 27 a well known verse says, religion that God and our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress. People who are vulnerable people who are in particular need look after them. And the word regard that we see in our verse, it has the idea of thoughtful and considered actions. It's more than just throwing a pound in a tin every now and again it's more than some kind of knee-jerk reaction to, to seeing somebody who is weak as is termed in our passage it's not action that produces dependence on others either it's not tick-in-the-box compassion it's the kind of compassion that Christ both showed and commanded of his followers it's the kind of regard for the weak which proclaims to the world that we are different it's thought out it's considered action with the aim to really support someone in need, maybe changing their lives. And we, we, we know what that looks like. In school, maybe that's looking out for the new kid on day one, being aware of, of the person who's just moved into the school, knowing that they don't have any friends, and looking out for them and drawing close to them and being that friend from them, being that support, changing that child's life on their first day in school. In work, it could be just being aware of somebody who you've, you've realized or is really struggling under the, the stress or the pressure or maybe the, it seems as if there's things going on in their lives that, that they're not sharing with other people and they're really struggling and you can see it. You can see it in the change in their personality or, or the way they act around other people and it's pulling alongside them and, and asking how they're doing, checking in with them periodically, offering some empathy or some sympathy, giving them advice maybe to see a professional that's what's necessary and then going back and checking up on them in spare time it might be volunteering at the local whatever it is that you can volunteer at and get passionate about and practically loving the vulnerable like jesus would love them blessed are you when you do these types of things you are favored in the eyes of god i believe that david was that kind of person as well now i know he was guilty of horrendous things terrible things but david was actually his nature he was a real man of passion and forgiveness when hunted by saul for no other reason than jealousy he tried so hard to build those bridges back up when he had clear chances when he was running from saul to kill saul he chose not to because he believed that wasn't what god would have wanted from him and not only that when he was king he found saul's descendant mephibosheth somebody who would have naturally been an enemy of his, But somebody who was disabled. And he brings him into his house. And rather than treating cruelly or, or, or treating in the way that people would have expected, David gives him everything he needs. A vulnerable person, a person in need. And David gives them everything that he needs. He was a man who actually showed regard for the weak. And he knows that the Lord delivers these people when they're in, when they're in need. And he, he knows what the deliverances God has looked like. He was, as a child, delivered by God from the lion, from the bear, from Goliath. And in so many situations on his, in his life, God has been there to deliver him. The powerful God, the delivering God, he has been there. David knows that as he writes these verses, and as he writes and, and cries out to God for his deliverance, it's a, God, it's a deliverance that he knows. He's experienced it before. It's not just theoretical. It's experiential. He knows that this is a God who delivers who preserves delivers in times of trouble protects and preserves them keeps them from their foes sustains them on their sick bed restores them from illnesses these are promises that god is making and david is crying out for what a powerful god what a gracious god david knew and that god is the same yesterday today and forever and therefore those promises are ours today as well surely As long as we we look out for the needy, as long as we are those people having regard for the weak, then we can rest on God's promises. Surely that's the way, just like David writes. Well, actually, no, not really. We can't take our situation with our God to be the same as David's situation with his God. We don't view our God, and God doesn't view us in the same way that he viewed those in the Old Testament. We are in a totally different relationship. It's not right for us to think, well, as long as we are having regard for the needy, then God will answer these pleas for us. In the Old Testament, there was this kind of covenantal uh, relationship. And, And time and time, it seems to play out in the Old Testament that as long as people did their bit, God would bless. Now, that's a massive oversimplification of the situation. And God was a gracious God. And as we've looked at the life of Jacob, we've seen that people who really didn't deserve God's grace, God seemed to pour it out on them anyway. So it is an oversimplification, but it would not be reasonable for us to to put ourselves in that category and say, well, as long as we tick the box, then God will pour out his mercy and grace on us and, and preserve us. That's not how God works. David sinned, and there was a judgment for him. He lost a son. His other son is now taken over the throne. He's ill. All of this is because of his sin, he says. However, you and I are not in this kind of situation. We are under the grace of God. And we live a life on the grounds of grace. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, owning him as your Lord and having asked him for forgiveness from your sins, then Jesus has taken the punishment for your sins. we are in a very different standing before God. And whilst we accept that God can use a variety of methods to deal with us, and sometimes they're very uncomfortable, uh, and sometimes they are there to correct us or chastise us or, or, or to move us back into the right way, whilst God can do those things, that we are not in the same place as someone like King David. We are free from the idea that God's favor on us is dependent on our good works. And thank God for that. God graciously pours out his, his compassion on us, And it should be a real comfort to us that this is where we stand with God. Not in a dependent place. It's not conditional love. And the blessings that David was looking for from God, they are ours simply because God God loves us and we are his children. And if he wants to pour out his grace and his blessings on us and preserve us and keep us, then he will do exactly that. We are not in the same place as King David. And for all of his hope, in God, based on God's mercy, we are in a better position. And we can call out to God in times of real hurt, of real needs, whether it's physical, emotional, whatever it happens to be, we can call out to God for these promises of preservation and of healing and etc. David was resting on the words of Christ, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We are graciously loved by god and so in verse 4 we see this repentance and this plea of david have mercy on me and heal me for i've sinned and it, it is important that david was willing to admit that he had sinned before god and expect um, and whilst he knew that the illness was actually it was a direct cause or consequence of the sin he calls out for mercy david knew that no matter how good he had been no matter how many Fis- mephibosheths Hard word to say. He might have dealt with in his life, no matter how much he might have tried to stack up the good works, it was never going to undo all of the evil in his life. <clears throat> but praise God that God's mercy outweighs our sin every single time. Every time. But he was willing to admit and to acknowledge his sin. He knew it was important and that idea is in scripture that we need to take our sins to God and to confess them. It's actually really important. When we sin against other people, it's really important in terms of b- rebuilding that bridge that we, we go to that person and we say sorry and we, we, we try to, to repair that. It's even more important than when we know that we've sinned before God, that we take that sin to God repentantly to say sorry, to ask for forgiveness, to turn away from it to to have that sin dealt with removed as it as it often can damage our relationship with god god doesn't want those he's not going to if we're children of his he's not going to judge us for them but they can still damage our relationship so god wants us to take our sins to him and then leave them there not take them away with us again he doesn't want us to keep beating ourselves up about our sins he doesn't want our sins to become our sordid little secret in our hearts he sees the secrets anyway. He wants us to take our sins to him, say, to ask for forgiveness, to, to, to leave them at the cross where Jesus has already dealt with them, And then to live a life of restored relationship with God. And David was able to say, I've sinned. And I know that. And then to cry out for mercy from God, even in spite of his sin. So have mercy on me, David says. In the next few verses, he tells us a little bit of what he's been up against. When you read in verses five and onwards, these people only want ill for me. They speak in malice. They long for my death so that another might take my place. They want to see my name disappear from the earth. They come to visit me. But what they're trying to do is trick me. They come with false intentions to ask how I am. But really, they're trying to find fault, to find reasons to hate me, to find things to spread about me. They try to twist my words and create slanderous things to say about me. They whisper about me, it's terrible. This attack on David was real. It was genuine. And boy, did it hurt. These were people who should have been his friends. And they were turning against him and saying terrible things about him. They were gossiping and spreading it around the palace and beyond. Lies aimed to discredit him and probably to try and turn the nation against him to make him seem like he was completely unfit to be king and it hurt and anyone who's here and has been a victim of something like that lies in slander it it feels as if somebody has physically stabbed you in the back it's painful and it's hard not to feel sorry for david in this situation considering the way that other than his obvious failings and, and grieved sins He has tried to lead the nation with sacrifice and with integrity. There's no reaction of compassion from the people. No kindness, just betrayal. Now I know it goes without saying. That kind of action, that kind of attitude should never be us. Can never be us. Not one of us, no matter our age, no matter our situation, not one of us can be the kind of person who slanders, who makes stuff up. Who tries to turn the crowd against somebody who cannot be trusted with their intentions. Now, maybe we think that that kind of thing stops when we leave school, primary school or whatever it is. But I don't think it does. And maybe you know people who who are exactly like that. You really can't trust their intentions at all. Maybe you know the kind of person who who tries to ask how you're doing just so that they can bring it up in a conversation later on and, and, and spread your problems with other people. Or maybe you know someone that would befriend somebody, but as quickly as possible, drop them if they didn't think it was actually in their interests. What we need to be, as children of God, as as Christ's representative on earth, is people who are marked by genuine compassion. People need to be able to trust that what we say and our actions and our attitudes are absolutely legitimate. We shouldn't even be saying things which are exaggerations to to. Like make a point or to get a bigger reaction we shouldn't be misquoting people just to make our stories seem better we actually need to be genuine we need to be totally honest we need to be filled with integrity scripture says that our yes should be yes and our no should be no and and people should know that we are people of honesty proverbs is full of statements about people who can't be trusted proverbs twelve twenty two says this lying lips are an abomination to the Lord but those who deal faithfully are his delight. Let us be people of integrity, that nobody needs to feel or suffer because of actions of, our, of ours or motives or any kind of thing that we might have done which would hurt somebody. And even David's seemingly best friend, very possibly Hethophel, his chief counsellor has turned against him. The person who ate at his table, a real meaningful thing in scripture, when somebody ate at the table ate of your meal when you dined with him it was a real act of like bringing like being close to somebody and this person who shared his table and ate with him has now turned against him the phrase in the authorised version is has lifted up his heel against me and it has the meaning of a real act of treachery it's actually the same idea we find with Jesus When we think about the way that he spent his last supper, sitting at a table with one who who would betray him. Sharing bread, sharing a meal with somebody, Judas, who would ultimately give him the worst of betrayals. And when we think of the essence of that betrayal, of a friend of Jesus, someone who spent time with him, eating on his table, but actually thinking that his death would be better for him than his life. We get a sense of how David felt. This psalm is, I suppose, in some sense a little bit prophetic. It's not a prophetic psalm. David is talking about having sinned and his illness being a, a judgment of his sin. And we can't put that on the Lord Jesus Christ, but in some senses, it's a prophetic psalm. David has been betrayed. His closest people have turned against him. And we think about Jesus. Think about our Lord, the one who, who was betrayed, who even the disciples fled from, who was betrayed by Judas. And it's just, it's remarkable as David calls out for mercy, that Christ would also call out to his father, to God. So, in light of these things, all of the pain that David calls on, from, uh, that David has been through, he calls on God, he says in verse 10, But may you have mercy on me, Lord. Raise me up that I may repay them. Know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. Because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. David knows two things in this situation. First of all, there is nothing he can do to defend himself. And secondly, God is merciful and able to do anything that he needs. David is ill. He's betrayed. He doesn't know who he can trust. And potentially he might be fearing for his life and certainly fearing for his throne. But there's nothing that he can do. Nothing. But he knows who can. There are Psalms where when you read them, it seems as if David's tone is one of, I just can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. I just, I don't know what's going to happen. Some of the Psalms, almost as if he's given up hope. This is not one of those Psalms. This psalm is actually full of encouragement. I'm sure you, like David, have not in exactly the same situation sense, and circumstance, as your throne taken away from you, but <laughs> you, you probably felt a bit like him at times. Like the world is against you. Like everything is just conspiring against you. Maybe you feel like that just now. Like David, don't give up hope. Not because... Everything works out at the end. Not because the universe has a way of sorting itself out or anything like any of those trite, petty sayings that people say. But because God is a God of mercy. God loves you and he longs to make things work for your good. He has plans for you. For your good. And for that reason, because we have a powerful God who is able to do anything and knows your circumstance better than yourself. Because of who our father is and who your god is don't give up hope why does david want to be raised back up to repay those who have worked against him this sounds like quite a vengeful statement but that doesn't seem to be the underlying idea at all he wants to be raised back to his position so that he can win people back over those who are his friends those who have been tricked he wants to be able to restore them to a place that is right he is after all the god anointed king and the nation and his friends have been tricked and turned against him. He's not looking for vengeance. He's not looking for God to, to come back in with the lightning bolts and etc. etc. There are psalms where he does call out for God to act on his enemies. This isn't one of those psalms. This is actually a psalm of reconciliation. That I may repay them so that he can rebuild those bridges. So that he can be in a position where actually the nation can be the way that they should be aligned with God's will, with David as their king. And so he leaves this. He leaves his future in the hands of a loving God who's in control of all situations. And he has faith that God is able to do just what he needs. God must be pleased with him because his enemies haven't overrun him. Even in a state of illness, God has preserved him this far. He knows that his illness is the reward for his sins, but actually he says, God must be pleased with me. Please enough to bless me. And so he calls out, calls out to God to have mercy on him. And encourages David to continue in a life of integrity. To walk in honesty before God. And so should we. We're all aware of God's ability to see all. Sometimes we have a tendency to forget that. I know I do. But it shouldn't be the reason that God sees what we do. That shouldn't be the reason for our obedience or our faithfulness to God. We don't try to obey him and walk a path of integrity because otherwise you'll know and then he'll judge us and do all kinds of things to us. That's not the point at all. We obey God and we walk a, a path of integrity because of what he has done for us already. Because of the blessings that he has given us yesterday, today, because of promises and assurances he has made for our future because he loves us he stands beside us in the hard times because he has been there as the powerful god in our past and he longs for our best in the future and in light of what he has done in light of the cross and of our christ in the light of his salvation to us in light of his blessings which are unbelievable we continue to walk a path of integrity to the best of our ability we get it wrong I certainly know I do. I miss sins. I, I don't take them to God because I've forgotten about them because there's so many of them. Ones which I did without even realizing I was doing, terrible motives, horrible thoughts. And I praise God that his mercy is so much that it stretches beyond all of my sins. But to the best of our ability, in light of all that he has done for us, we continue to walk that path of honesty before him, looking out for those who are weak, resting on his promises, being people who take our sins to God, knowing that he is a God who loves us, who cares for us, who has a path for us already set out, and who just longs for our best. And so we praise him, and we worship him this morning. And what might be the most appropriate thing, just to close this morning is just well, to close this part is just to say grab that back up is just to say this final verse together this final verse which is the closing verse in light of of all that god is in light of his incredible and, and wonderful blessings to us in light of all that he has done this final verse this, this final verse in the chapter, if you've got your Bible open, um, is a great verse of praise to our God. And so maybe we can just say it together. Verse 13 Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let me just pray. Father, I just pray that you would speak to us today. I thank you that we can just praise you as the God of Israel, the one who is from everlasting and to everlasting. Father, I thank you for all of your blessings. I thank you for your mercy to us. I thank you that we can live lives in your mercy, understanding how your, your blessings and, and just calling out to you for your promises. And so, Father, I just ask that throughout the rest of our service as we praise you as we remember you in communion, that you would just fill us with joy and fill us with our knowledge. Of, uh, of the blessings that you have for us in light of who you are so i just i thank you and i praise you and i pray that you'll just speak to each one of us in christ's name